This podcast is intended as entertainment for grown-ups and to spread awareness of 826LA, a nonprofit writing and tutoring center for children ages 6 to 18. Visit 826LA.org for a full schedule of 826LA's events and programs, including the Time Travel Mart, with locations in Echo Park and Mar Vista, California. And now, the host of the Dead Authors Podcast, Mr. H.G. Wells. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Chapter 36 of the Dead Authors Podcast. I am your host, H.G. Wells, and my guest for this chapter is the American scholar and novelist Ralph Ellison. Professor Ellison's is an intellect so robust that he created an invisible man you could actually see. And this without the chap wearing so much as a pair of welding goggles or a bloody great wad of sport bandages atop the shoulders of his smoking jacket. Fascinating stuff. You know, dear listener, despite my many, many, many achievements, I'm really not so different from you, except for the achievements. Every now and again, even I feel the need to cast off the shackles of the life of the mind and see how the other 99.9% live. Would it astonish you to learn that from time to time, I even partake in a... Lives. It should be lives. 99.9% lives. Would it astonish you to learn that from time to time, I even partake in a good old-fashioned bit of telly? Or as the young people call it, the surfing of channels. Well, it's true. And most of what I see is absolute tosh. Including tosh. Fusion's got a few good programs, but the rest is utter drivel. Just the other day, I came across a show that purported to rank the 10 most haunted locations in the world. I mean, honestly, are we still so obsessed with spooks and spectres? Have not our minds developed beyond the point of old wives' tales and superstition? What's that? I'm being told now that they haven't, and it doesn't surprise me a bit, which is why I endeavoured to visit these 10 allegedly ghostly locales and debunk them all with a healthy dose of good old-fashioned scientific investigation. Didn't take long, even without benefit of the fanciful gear developed by Messrs. Spengler and Stance. That's right, there were of course perfectly rational explanations for each of the phenomena observed at all 10 places. In fact, the debunking process proved such a trifle that I expanded my investigation to all manner of other television 10 most lists. The 10 most romantic honeymoon destinations, the 10 most delicious milkshakes, the 10 most extreme water parks. I scrutinized a lot of them, and what I found appalled me. There appeared to be absolutely no scientific underpinning to any of these rankings. Why, you might as well have thrown a dart at a list pinned to the wall or spent an afternoon soliciting promotional consideration from the various establishments until you had enough to fill a half hour. It was absolutely preposterous. I found the whole exercise so disheartening, I immediately rushed back to my beloved library and read a book so thick you could cave in a raccoon's skull with it. Having said that, some of the milkshakes weren't half bad. In fact, I've got a mind to nip round to Sunderland's for a strawberry rhubarb. And while I do that, you do this. Listen to Chapter 36 of the Dead Authors Podcast with my guest, Ralph Ellison. Have you found it? Yes. I do apologize, Mr. Ellison. I couldn't read. It was not... I tell you, man, it's great to be here, but I thought I was on here on the wrong show. I was looking for some sort of Norwegian author or maybe a keeper of sagas to come in and uh, tell us what was going on. And then you fucked up my intro, so right about now, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling about, uh, 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 you know, a little Minnesota. If that, if that means anything to you. 
I, I, I almost feel as if I can read between lines and understand, but for the benefit of the audience, uh, if you'd like to explain that. Well, uh, on the way over here, and I have to explain, particular transport is insane. Every particle of your being is pulled apart except the things that are attached to you, and those are stretched. Um, my hair is 10 yards longer than it normally is. I've just managed to compress it because I'm such a great writer, and I realize that compression is the most important thing. So through a series of epoxies and gels, etc. But they also have, to comfort you during this distress, music. And they played on a loop, Chris Cornell. Um, and I had this line, man. Uh, 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 Looking California with feeling Minnesota, some such thing. It hypnotized me. And uh, just the possibilities, literary possibilities, and this gentleman named Chris Cornell, and I, I, I look forward to seeking out his works, um, <laughs> literary or oral or otherwise. Oh, certainly. I, I would say a, a garden of sound awaits you. <laughs> Let us hope it is rich and beautiful and that no dogs come. Uh, Miss <laughs> Mr. Ellison, I wonder if you might favor our audience with, uh, with a reading from one of your works. I would love to. Um, most people are very familiar with um, The Invisible Man. Uh, I was also a writer of short stories and essays, etc., etc. Uh, certainly my essays were pointed and burning arrows at certain fuckheads and assholes. <laughs> were those the primary targets, fuckheads and assholes? Well, they fit into a general category and they're easier to hit that way. Well, is there, is there a sort of umbrella that encompasses both the fuckhead and the asshole? Uh, Shit face, I don't, you know. Shit faces. You have so to keep your ear to the ground, man. And, and really, the thing is to get to the youth and the, follow their slang. There were two youths uh, shooting pistols at each other and warning each other that the shot was coming and they would duck, and this was the game. I'm shooting at you, here comes the bullet. They ducked, they get out of the way. Well, one child uh, looked at the ground and lost focus. His friend shot at him anyway and got popped in the neck. Screamed out like a like a just a like a Mach four speed sigh, um, and 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 then uttered this word at the end of it I'd never heard before, and it was dickhead. Uh, and I remember thinking this word, this utterance, is the perfect way to describe Norm, Norman Mailer, um, and I certainly filed it away for safekeeping. Perhaps certainly. we'll get to that. Well, certainly no argument here, but please. This selection here is a story called Afternoon, and it is about a couple of youths. Um, um, me keeping my ear to the ground, I have to use it in some uh, credible way. And so here we go. This is from a short story from a book called Flying Home and Other Stories. It is available at Random House. Uh, Kirkus <laughs> Reviews calls it uh, magnificent and epochal, um, a wonderful addition to the Ellison oeuvre. So this you are this so is a first, by the way. Usually, <laughs> usually our authors do not tell you the publisher, nor read some of the blurbs. <laughs> But I, I, don't, I don't mind it. I do, as, as a writer, I don't mind it, and I encourage uh, future guests well, uh, uh, to do the same. I tell you, I'd like to quote uh, uh, an, uh, an early uh, interview of Chrissy Hind, who said, I'm competitive as fuck, so... <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Um, wonder why they had them glass things up there. To keep them guys what climbs up there from getting shocked, I guess. Riley caught the creosote smell of the black paint on the pole as his eyes traveled over its rough surface. High as a bitch, he said. It ain't so high, I bet I can't hit that glass on the end there. Buster, you full of brown. You can't hit that glass, it's too high. Shucks, give me a rock. They looked slowly over the ground, looking for a rock. Here's a good one Riley called, an egg rock. Throw it here and watch how old Lou Gehrig snags him on first base. 
Riley pitched. The rock came high and swift. Buster stretched his arm to catch it and kicked out his right leg behind him, touching base. And he's out on first, he cried. You got him all right, Riley said. You just watch this. Riley watched as Buster wound up his arm and pointed to the insulator with his left hand. His body gave a twist and the rock flew upward. Crack. Pieces of green glass sprinkled down. They stood with hands on hips, looking about them. A bird twittered. A rooster crowed. No one shouted to them. And the boys laughed nervously. What I tell you? Damn, I never thought you could do it. We better get away from here in case somebody saw that. Riley looked around. Come on. They walked out to the alley. There's more, but I mean... Ralph, <laughs> Ralph Ellison, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much indeed. Um, you were born uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is correct. You were named for the, uh, you were named for the poet uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is correct. Uh, did having that, as a, having, having that poet as a namesake, do you, do you feel as if you were destined to become a, a someone of letters? Well, I tell you, man, fate is a mother, and it's hard to wrap your head around it. You know, I um, went to the Merchant Marines, mm. and I served there. I also uh, took to sculpting. I don't like to be confined, so I'm a writer by choice and by fate, yes, but my work is informed by other things. The incidents, the complexity of it, it all comes from other things, dance. Um, I love a mechanism. If you give me something for a present, I'm likely to take the back off of it and get into the wires and the nuts and bolts of the things, and uh, God forbid it should have, you know, genitalia or something. I'm going to find out the actual, <laughs> the organism behind it. I want to know what happened. So all of this factors into my writing. I was destined to be a writer because it's the only thing that you can funnel all of these interests into. Getting to the taking things apart, you famously did uh, enjoy uh, um, uh, opening up uh, uh, hi-fi systems and, and figuring out how those things work. In all the stereos that you'd taken apart, did you ever find any genitals? <laughs> you know, man, they had these diodes, the Japanese, and for some reason, it's an inside joke, I think, to the nerds in the audience. Um, they are... They are... They are... I don't know what, to, what else to call them, but the two nuts... And they're strung together, and between them is a diode that dangles down. Now, you're face-to-face -face with that, and you're a young man from Oklahoma City where not much goes on, and you can't do anything but laugh for three or four hours. So it took me. Because you've, op you've opened up a, a, a stereo, and there's, a, the, and there's the twig and berries right in there. It's, uh, it's astounding, at the least, to say the least. So the answer to that question uh, is uh, yes. <laughs> Um, one of your biographers established that uh, you were born a year earlier than had previously been thought. Can you shed any light on why there might be some confusion as to the year in which you were born? I was born in 1913. Mm. Originally, 1914 was written. Um, I was playing Little League Baseball, and you need an extra year of eligibility. The team wasn't doing too well. Now, here's the thing. I was a pitcher, and I could look at a team and take them apart like a mechanism. And the state championship come around, and we came in. But you know, man, it, it, what happened, brother, was that we got to about the championship, and the, ro the rotation work, they said, this Ellison kid can't pitch. You can't pitch two games in six days. That's, that, on a young arm, that's too much. Just rude. They didn't know me. <laughs> 
Uh, so we put a uh, 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 little Rocky Lockridge in there, and he got his head blown off, and we just lost. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, what happened to little Rocky? Well, it's a, it's a figure of speech. I oh. apologize. That's the writer in me. But in, in baseball, they got a term, and it's all about artillery and a fusillade. And, man, balls just went flying past his face. It was, it was awful. <laughs> so the next year, the coach come, and uh, um, uh, they wanted to forge uh, my birth certificate so that I could play again. And, um, that seems rather extreme <laughs> to, to, if I, if I may, well, if give I may me, say. Give me another year of eligibility. Well, no, I understand why, but... Uh, but Have uh, you been to Oklahoma City? <laughs> I can't say that I've had the pleasure. Time travel over there, man. Go back there when I was there. RC Cola, that was your dessert all day long, man. <laughs> I say that, that sounds rather, rather nice uh, to, to, to time travel back to see a uh, little Ralph Ellison playing uh, some Little League Baseball. Hey, man, be real quiet. Strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. Was baseball more exciting back then? Well, the balls were heavier and they were more uneven. <laughs> they weren't, weren't perfectly spherical? No, you know, you had these machines now to tie them tight as a cork, and I can't imagine what you have now. Robots and whatnot, I'm Certainly. sure. Certainly, robots, Automatons, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and I don't know what's in the core of a baseball, but then it was yarn hand tied. And, you know, I mean, these people get sleepy after about the third ball of the day. So. Are, you, are you itching to open up a modern day baseball and see what's inside? Maybe some genitals? <laughs> I can tell you right now there's no genitals inside a baseball. Uh, that would not be pure flight. Fair play to you. Yeah. Um, you were born in, uh, in Oklahoma City. Uh, um, this is interesting. Your father, who was a, 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 a working-class man, he was, a, he was a small business owner, a construction foreman, um, you discovered years after his death that uh, he had hoped you would grow up to be a poet. Now, I think that's the first time in Earth's recorded history <laughs> that that's ever happened. Was, th was this... Uh, this must have been very touching to you to find out uh, uh, later in life. Well, you know, Captain, um, it was... <laughs> Pointed. It, it struck an acute note with me. It, uh, this is delicate territory because, you know, I was in the Merchant Marines and for some reason that wasn't good enough. And um, I was a sculptor, that didn't, that wasn't good enough. And, and I was a photographer, paid photographer, and that wasn't good enough. And I hope that some of you can relate to this. To find out that your father wanted you to be a poet, and so that means that you were close to the mark, but not on the mark. And I wrote poetry, but I just never gave it to anyone because, you know, it's poetry. <laughs> Thank you very much for saying that. Now, this is something I've said on the stage many times. It, it's the most embarrassing form of writing. Poetry. It's well, just dreadful. It is. And, and if you think of... It, you might be the most anthologized, the most lovely, the most noted of, say, the Yale singers of younger poets. And you might be a crap writer because it's all political. And some of the best writers that we have are only half known. I don't know how many people here know Frank O'Hara, but he was wonderful and amazing. And when they do the things that they do, and they do them well, it breaks your heart because you cannot do that. And so you take all your poetry and you put it in a drawer. You know? and, and, and let it be known that everyone should do that. <laughs> I'll give you a good example. The very last stanza of The Day Lady Died, which is a list of things that Frank O'Hara did on the way to finding out that Billie Holiday was done. And he lists these things. And then the last thing he says is, and I am leaning 
I am thinking of leaning against the John door of the five spot and listening while she whispers a song along the keys to Mal Waldron and I and everyone stop breathing. Well, at the end of that line, you're out of breath anyway, so you know what he felt like. That's brilliance. But who does that? Sad people. Well, he died. He was hit by a dune buggy, so. I say? At a very young age. So he can't win. Even in, even in death, he can't win. Hit by a dune buggy? On Fire Island. It gets better. Uh, dune buggies kill more people than sharks every year. Even in this decade. Even, even in this decade. But they were all the rage when I was younger. Dune buggies on the street, dune buggies in the shopping centers. It was terrible. Well, they're a bit of fun. I say, have you seen people uh, 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 riding about on those segways? Why would I have seen them? I just arrived. Well, you, you, you have some free time to go about. And, I did do, do some, um, some walking. I stayed out of idiot land. <laughs> oh, too harsh. <laughs> The man can't write the greatest book in the world and then have a sharp wit. Ooh, that's a burn on you, audience. You've been Ellison. Searing, but only on this end. Ralphed. Now, <laughs> I, I presume that's uh, R-A-L-P-H apostrophe D. Why don't you let me trademark it? <laughs> so, certainly, <laughs> certainly, certainly didn't mean to do any punch-up on your work. I'm just then? saying, I think... There's a certain grocery store tycoon who has the other. I mean. uh, good point. Now, this is, uh, this is very sad. But your father, he died when you were three years old from stomach ulcers he received from an ice-delivering accident. Now, obviously, we all know how this can happen. But perhaps... You could shed some light on this particular incidence of an ice-delivering accident leading to death by stomach ulcer. When the twittering stops, I will. Please, a little when the respect. last stops, I will get A little respect it. for a man whose father died, very tragically, of ice-delivery-related <laughs> stomach ulcers. I have a visual memory, and so I see this in pictures, but I'm an articulate man, and so I will tell you. <laughs> and when I say articulate, I mean in a good way, not in the way that, you know, the re the Republican <laughs> auctioneer of a politician might say about a... Anyway. I'm sorry, did you say a politician or an auctioneer? Well, they're both, aren't they, really? They just stand there and say, blah, 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 time is up, this bill is dead. You know, and, and really, what, what, what is there to say? I, it, I'm sitting in a chair. My father says, bye-bye. Uh, there's a bottle of milk because I'm a milk drinker. Big milk drinker. And so the milk is there and is gone. Now, much like you imagine the mind of a dog, a three-year-old child whose father leaves in the morning, the rest of the day is really things that ring and beep, shadows passing from one window to the next, <laughs> then a very specific frequency of tires on whatever type of driveway you have. These were brown rocks. The, by the way, if you could stop laughing, a little respect, please. Please. 
Pray, some respect for Mr. Ellison. I don't hear the tires on the track, and the shadow is where it should be when the tires come. And then the women from the church start to come. And then my mom makes me get dressed. And I put on a bow tie on a Thursday. <laughs> Very idea. And we're taken to the hospital, and he's there, but they won't let me see him. And then he's not there, but they'll take me to the room. And then on Saturday, uh, there was a gathering of people. And much like children, it just all goes by. It's like the first time you were taken to a drive-in movie theater, you know? And then it just ends, and it's a movie in your mind, and you put it in a short story, and you get over it, and that's it. So that's sort of what happened. I'm sorry I ran you through the ringer on that. It's just, you know, it's, I felt it, and so I had to make other people feel it. And Certainly. it's just a wonderful thing. You know? Certainly. You've been Ralphed. <laughs> Don't spell it. <laughs> um, you, you, uh, you, you, your obsession with uh, uh, technology, specifically audio technology, began as a child. Uh, you would take apart and rebuild radios, um, hi-fi stereo systems, um, and uh, one of your scholars uh, contends that your, uh, your, your deftness with uh, the ins and outs of electronic devices went on to inform your approach to writing in the novel form. Is that fair to say, or is this fellow uh, just uh, full of hot air? No, that fellow is a genius. Um, I think that sound, intonation, everything affects... We work in words, and words, we have an idea, we have to filter that down to words that other people can recognize. We then give that to you, and you use your mind to filter it further away from where I started, and then you articulate that to your brain. I mean, it's uh, to yourselves, from your brain. So it's four or five times removed by the time you get the idea that I felt. Painters don't have this. This is the dilemma and the, and the joining, the, 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 the chitin that that sort of joins painters and writers is that you can go to your painter friend's house and he's got an orange splotch and a yellow splotch and he says, that's Kentucky Derby, and you get it. You see it, you get the feeling. But if I write a story about the Kentucky Derby, your mind goes off on some girl that you were in love with in fourth grade who told you that uh, you weren't good enough to wear a fancy hat. And so <laughs> this, but this is the thing. And so to listen to things and hear how they are. And in, in Invisible Man, you know, there is a point where... Um, I'm um, sorry, in... in uh in The Invisible Man? In your The Invisible in Man. In my Invisible Man. Certainly. Let's just keep the line there. That's right, yes. And be very careful about which is which. Gauze, no gauze. That's a very handy way to remember it. Uh, he's stirring paint, and um, there are um, letters on the stirrer, and the letters phonetically play out um, the phrase scadiwa, which was the way you articulated scat in, in, in jazz. And this was just layering and infusing, and probably nobody got it. And this is the first time it's been put out there. But that is the thing. It's knowing how things sound and what's important to convey feeling. If I said apple and I said apple, <laughs> two separate things. Now, in the second example. But how do you write that second one? All caps. <laughs> If your hand is layered in gauze, of course, that's all you can make. <laughs> the fine letters don't work. And who would believe you wrote it? There was nobody there. Another point for Mr. Ellison? Um, uh, so you, went to, you studied music uh, first, 
Um, uh, and then you went on to New York City to study the visual arts. This is where you got into sculpture and photography. Um, what was it about sculpture that appealed to you so much? Was it the clay? It was the girls, man. It, it is just that simple, isn't it? It's the girls, they man. They parade a bunch of naked women in front of you. Well, there's that. I mean, you get it coming and going. I mean, these, 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 listen to me, Cochise. These, these, these New York women. <laughs> They come in to a room and, they, and they have, you have 60 minutes with them to do what you're going to do. Now, in the hallway, you've got 10 minutes to get the number. You've got to chase them down. And they're spending four minutes getting the clothes back on. Or in that day, maybe even eight minutes of the 10 minutes because there was a lot of layers and buttons that didn't work and that kind of <laughs> stuff. But, 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 you know, the other thing is, though, the girls in the class were fantastic. They were the type of women who said, you know, no, I don't want to be a typist. And um, yes to the Communist Party and things that they were all regret within five years, but <laughs> they were wonderful for that time, you know? Everyone was young and oh, naked geez. or looking at naked the people. The police come in a room, you take a little bottle of a flask of whiskey out in the theater and go put that in your purse. And they would hide it. <laughs> and when you get it back, it would be empty because they drank it. <laughs> Uh, in New York, you met uh, Richard Wright, and uh, you would have a, a, a long and, uh, and very uh, involved relationship with him. Um, and he encouraged you to, uh, uh, to begin your writing career, really, after, after you, wrote a, uh, you wrote a review, a book review for him. I did write a book review for him. This is the thing, man. This low-bellied beast in the grass, this snake with uh, uh, an assortment of eyes and fangs and sensory... Tongue. It's just the media wants to the, put this story out that, that, that a man uh, urged you and he's the lever that gives us this great uh, novel. And, and uh, it's not true. Really? Um, to a small extent. I mean, he said the words, but it wasn't his urging. He said them once. And that is, you know, I mean, you're telling me that I wrote possibly the greatest thing ever written <laughs> because Richard Wright, who wrote a lesser book, a lesser book <laughs> urged me to write off of a book review. A book review. Now, you say, you say he, he mentioned once that you should, uh, you should pursue writing. That's hardly an urge. No. Right? And, I and, mean, and if we're really going to break down urging, it's at least twice. <laughs> I th personally, I think the rule is three times makes an urge. There you are. Uh, he commented on my book review, and he said, Oh, Ellison, you should try fiction. That was actually a criticism. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> it was only after the review itself became popular that he then came round, and then he said it again. Uh, Ellison, you should try... And he stopped short of saying fiction, so he actually really only said it the one time. He just sort of said it and stood it there, and he looked at the precipice and thought, This motherfucker beat me with a book review if I tell him to write a book <laughs> so you felt that this book review well he already eclipsed anything that Richard Wright had written up to that point it's Richard Wright he wrote Native Son and it was interesting and dogmatic but here's the thing man we were both affiliated in some way with the Communist Party but we were both writers and this is where we separate um, I do not feel in any way and have never felt that you make your party by name the core, the ballast of your work. Because 
that name is just a name. The principles are the principles. Right was just all, oh, communists, give me the, what do they call them now, bumper stickers? Give me the bumper stickers. Give me the bumper stickers. Slap them everywhere. Give me the placards. Slap them everywhere. In his book, just how many times does he say, I mean, if they had such a thing, you could have a drinking game of the number of times the Communist Party is mentioned in, 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 in his book. But what happens if, let's say, the name for the Communist Party at that time was, uh, I don't know, uh, Monkey Blood, the Monkey Blood Party. And it made perfect sense at that time. And you get to 20 years later and people are reading a book talking about the monkey blood party, and it suddenly everything changes, everybody loses. So I just think that you don't walk around with a flag in your pants as if that's your junk. <laughs> you keep your real junk and you put it on the inside, and that's just the way that it is. And so in mine, I stay, for, and, and understand that that changed. I mean, that, 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 it changed. That party changed, its ideas changed, but the name sticks around. And so the book is about the ideas. Um, he got very angry at this because I was right. Well, yeah, yes, and, and you. Uh, and his last name was right, but he was wrong. <laughs> Irony? <laughs> um, you did become disillusioned with the, uh, with the Communist Party and, uh, um, uh, during World War II, um, and you felt that the party had betrayed uh, African Americans and replaced uh, uh, class politics with uh, social reformism. And so um, that's when you started writing uh, The Invisible Man. Um, you, you, you mentioned the merchant marines. You didn't want to serve in the segregated army, uh, but you did want to serve in some capacity, so that's when you joined the merchant marines. Um, did you enjoy being in the merchant marines? Well, man, I mean, enjoy is a big word. Um, How about this? Let's start smaller. It was tedious stuff. But do you like boats? <laughs> boats are all right. They're complex mechanisms, and you can get inside of them, pull on some wires and things. So did you ever nice. take a boat apart? I got inside of a boat, and I did everything to keep it from running because I did not want to go out to sea. <laughs> so you were actively sabotaging oh, yes. boats? In several different places, so that there was only one person who knew how to put it back together. <laughs> and all the king's horses, my friends. All of them. <laughs> um, you also, uh, your first story that you wrote um, was based on your, uh, uh, your, your life. Um, it was a short story called Jaime's Bull. Um, and it was inspired by uh, your hoboing on a train uh, with your uncle to get to the uh, Tuskegee uh, 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 Conservatory for, uh, for music. Um, what was it like riding the rails in those days? Did you and your uncle have a, was it a fun adventure? Was it harrowing? Was it a, a mixture of the two? I don't think I slept for the entire time. Um, when you were up and moving, it was fantastic, but then uh, there were quiet times. I learned that the kitchen, which was reserved for children and children's entertainment at night, um, would be co-opted by gamblers who smoked. Um, there was a young man who sat next to me at one point um, with a giant bag in Chicago, and it, um, it looked brown, a certain color of brown. Uh, when he unraveled it, an odor came out as thick as rich and thick as Spanish chocolate. I mean, it was just disgusting. <laughs> and he had a four-story bag full of fried chicken that he was going to eat so that he would not buy anything, but he was a gambler. And so you meet these interesting people who have these interesting details of their lives, but really uh, uh, it was using that to entertain yourself and then in the dark hours of the night trying not to get caught by, by uh, conductors and 
figure. We were jumping and jumping and running and running and not a lot of sleep. Was, was there any gambling with the chicken? <laughs> that seems like a lot of chicken. Well, look, man, um, I'm not a gambler myself. But I think that if I walked into a high-stakes poker game with a bag full of chicken, <laughs> I'd walk out with a knife in my neck. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say no. I'm going to proffer that and just say maybe there wasn't. <laughs> but wherever that guy was, you knew that he was around because the bag went with him and whew. Tangy. Here, here comes old chicken bag. Yeah. yeah. Um, Irish guy. You, ma <laughs> you married your, uh, your second wife, Fanny McConnell, uh, in 1946. And uh, while you were writing, you were getting your start as a writer. She worked as a photographer um, uh, to sustain uh, the two of you. Um, and she also assisted you by uh, typing your longhand text. So you would write in longhand. And then she would uh, transcribe the, uh, the longhand writing. Um, this is a lot of work to put on someone. <laughs> Did you have good legible handwriting? No, man. Chicken scratch? There's that worry. Look, I, I, what I did was I had fantastic ideas on paper. So Literally? Yes. <laughs> and they come at a rapid rate. And so the idea is to get them down. Now, she was a photographer. She had that great eye. So she could just kind of look at it with her head and turn around. Again. And I was always there. She'd say, what is this word? And I'd just go, oh, um, octopus. <laughs> type, type, type. She, she also assisted you in, uh, in editing uh, uh, the, the typescript as it progressed. Uh, uh, was that an easy process? I, I imagine a husband and wife uh, uh, working on, uh, on one project like that could be very difficult at times. I don't know if you're married, H.G. Wells. I am, after a fashion. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it's like having an owl on your shoulder. And every time you do the wrong thing, the owl says one thing. Not that. <laughs> and then it reaches down and it grabs that little thing. Like it's a mouse. It just takes it off. So she, when you, I let her edit, and she would just take things away. And if I didn't want to lose a hand, I would not protest. Um, I risked losing some fingers a couple times over a few words, and I realized, you know, let the owl eat. That's just the way it goes. So, but, but bonus, you get all those uh, mouse skeletons. Um, <laughs> do, so uh, ultimately, did you feel uh, uh, that, she, uh, that she made good contributions editing-wise to your work? It is one of the greatest books ever written, so I have to say yes, more or less, regardless <laughs> of what I felt at the time. You know, it's, I mean, I wanted to be id-based about it and say, oh, God, it was terrible, uh, and that there was such gold stuff that was left on the cutting room floor, but honestly... You look at the work and you think, I mean, you can't put more icing on that. <laughs> and you don't want to eat it because it looks so good. Let there be cake. Marriage is a partnership. <laughs> um, the Invisible Man, yours, non-Gaul's version, um, published in 1952. Um, it explores the theme of one man's search for his identity and place in society, seen from the perspective on an, of an unnamed black man in the New York City of the 1930s. Um, it, it was very different than your contemporaries, than Richard Wright, James Baldwin. Um, your characters were, were uh, it says here, dispassionate, educated, articulate, self-aware, 
um, you explored through the protagonist the contrast between the northern and southern varieties of racism. What would you say are the chief differences between northern racism and southern racism? Magic tricks. Is that so? <laughs> yes. In southern racism, it's straightforward. Um, there are no unicorns. There are no zebras where they should not be. Uh, a person comes to you and says, I don't know why you are here. In northern racism, you are welcomed into the room, and there are words being whispered around your head. But there's nobody there saying them. And so the idea is to make you feel a chill, and that you will tell yourself you do not belong here. And that is sort of the difference. These magic tricks, they're sorcerers. At that time, they were sorcerers in the north. In the south, they were just lumberjacks. <laughs> Chopping wood, man. It's, the, it's the, endless, the endless push and pull between lumberjacks and sorcerers. <laughs> pick, your, pick, your, pick, your, pick your poison and cross the line, you know? But uh, do you, you I mean, go. do you have a preference, uh, 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 northern <laughs> racism or southern racism? <laughs> well, you say that, you know, but there is this, this wonderful sort of um, causeway wherein you can sort of cross the turbulent ocean and look on both sides and feel the wind coming from the left and the wind coming from the right, and really none of it affects you. Sometimes you see the horrors and you make like Munch's woman and grab the sides of your face or that crazy kid in Home Alone and just go, whoa, <laughs> because it looks so horrible from a distance. But when you are the writer of one of the greatest works in the world that's ever been written, somehow <laughs> there is, you get, um, Oh, the game is called Dungeons and Dragons, and you get a cloak of sort of, of, of a cloak of delightful impenetrability or something. You know, I'm making it up, but they, whatever you're offered, and you, sort I'm, not, of, I'm still listening. You walk through these horrors and these winds, and they bounce off you as if you're made of a soft armor. I mean, you feel the push and pull of it. It doesn't, it affects you, but only slightly. And you get to see it and, and, and write about it. But it's really the intellectual community that allows you to do it. And your, it is your mission to do it truthfully. Unlike idiots like Norman Mailer, who take advantage of the audience's <laughs> willingness to just go along with anything they write because they want to be in the cloak of delightful impenetrability as, as well. And they'll just accept any sort of dribble as, as, as jelly beans. And it's, it's <laughs> you know, every day is not Easter, people. That's just the way it is. <laughs> And Norman Mailer is not a magic rabbit, so that's, that's just what I'm saying. Let's talk more about role-playing games. Um, <laughs> what do you think of this LARPing that people do, the live-action role-playing game? Where people, uh, they dress up in costume, and they, they go out there in their fancy dress, and, uh, and uh, they enact a little scene, or scene-lit. Yeah, man. <laughs> you know, I, I want to say to each his own, but uh, some shit is tiresome. <laughs> And, and part of it that's tiresome is my job is to understand the world. So you see these things. We learn by generalizing. So if it's confusing to me, we back up. And I back up. And, I back, and at the point that I get it, I think get more specific and close in and close in until I get what I didn't get before. But when you can't wrap your head around it, man, your arms get tired, your neck gets tired, your eyes get tired, and you just they say, this is the definition of tiresome. <laughs> Are we talking about steampunk now? Man, everything we have, and this fool tries to sell me a wooden watch. Go fuck yourself. 
the sort of idea that you take a, a perfectly good top hat and then you sew watch parts to it. And then the idea is, uh, oh, this chap must have just come from a hot air balloon. He, I just must be fresh off the Zeppelin. Either that or he's from Bald Knob, Arkansas, you know, and he's just going to sell his yams at the market in hopes of making buying enough burlap to make a flag to tell the scarecrows where to come and sit down at harvest time. I mean, this guy, you know. I am, I for one, have had it up to here with these steampunk yam salesmen. Enough is enough. Um, now, desp despite some things you've said here tonight, uh, you, you're a perfectionist uh, regarding uh, novels, the art of the novel. Uh, you said in accepting your National Book Award uh, in 1953. For the National Book them, Award, which I won, I had to accept it. Had, there was nothing for it but to accept the National Book Award, 1953. They gave it to me. Now, what you said at the, t what you said at the time was that you felt you had made, quote, an attempt at a major novel, and despite the award, you were unsatisfied with the book. Now, that's all rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> Did we get that? <laughs> so, a young lady, I believe, had uh, trouble holding on to... Uh, sound it sounded like sunglasses, am I correct? <laughs> Oh, she's hiding, I see you back there. <laughs> Was it one of the knee knockers? <laughs> they were combating the knee knockers. This is getting dangerously close to role playing. Yeah. <laughs> so what do, you, do you feel that you, do you feel that you succeeded in uh, writing a major novel? Did you, did you eventually come around to the idea that yes, I've done it? Well, I mean, you know, you can. Um, in your lifetime, have a child, and um, everyone's coming around and telling you you've given birth to King Arthur, and, and you say, come on, look at that shaggy-haired son of a bitch. <laughs> and you make him go out and take slop to the hogs, and, uh, and uh, you make him clean the bathroom floors, and one day the, the idiot pulls a sword out of a stone, <laughs> and you've given birth to King Arthur. So what I'm saying is, when I wrote it at the time, it looked like a shaggy-haired boy to me, and, and I, and I uh, was proud of having done so. I mean, there was an object there where there was nothing, the true definition of art. But at some point, with enough people talking, it pulled a sword out of the stone. And over time, as other people wrote and failed to reach the mark, it became one of the greatest things ever written. And so, you know, you have to accept that I have written what is, by comparison to other people's best attempts, uh, a major novel, yes. That's, that's a wonderfully modest way to look at it. And it's and measured, it, yeah. It, yes, modest it, it is never a tricky word, but measured. It never occurred to me to judge my own works in that way. Um, but to put Well, them your works were fantastical and weird. What is there to measure them against? I am the same. Well, I can think of one person in particular. <laughs> Not that idiot. Vern. Oh! Thank you. Bless you as always. Bless you as always, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'd like to talk with you about uh, about Juneteenth, um, which was uh, a, a novel I'm that... I'm not exactly uh, sure what Juneteenth is. Well, you had a... Uh, oh, well, 
Perhaps this was the name that was given to it uh, after you uh, had, had finished working upon it, but uh, uh, you were working on a, a second novel, um, and you lost a number of pages. Did I not finish that novel? Not as such. Um, <laughs> you, you certainly uh, you, you, you added a lot to it, um, but after you lost those, uh, those, uh, you had a house fire, and you lost uh, uh, how many pages? It was quite a lot. Um, a draft. Uh, more than three hundred pages of the manuscript were lost, and, and uh, so you, you spent a, a great deal of time, sort of uh, trying to recreate it and 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 um, uh, make another epic. Uh, sort of. Uh, this sort is of where novel. the owl gets you because the owl was sitting there on the shoulder for decades saying, Get a mimeograph. Why don't you get a mimeograph? <laughs> and as the technology changed, why don't you get a photocopying machine? Get a photostat. Get a photocopier. And I'm like, Woman, make up your mind. Is it a mimeo? Is it a photostat? I don't even know what a photocopier is. Get a Xerox. Lady! <laughs> I say, uh, she was a photographer. Why didn't she take pictures of the pages? <laughs> Because I'm a smart man and I don't marry morons. <laughs> that would be a stupid thing for her to do. Thank you for answering my question. I asked her and she said that was her answer. Oh, I see. Oh, I do see. You're a smart man and you didn't marry a moron. <laughs> so uh, you ultimately wrote more than 2,000 pages of this novel, but uh, you never did finish it. Um, it's the, uh, the story of uh, two characters... Um, a white race-baiting New England senator and uh, the black Baptist minister who turns out to have, uh, to have raised him uh, from when he was a boy. Um, and it was published uh, posthumously, I'm sorry to say, under the editorship of John F. Callahan, uh, professor at uh, Lewis and Clark College. He was your literary executor. He's a good man. He's a good man, although he, he um, did quite... He cut quite a bit out of uh, the manuscript... And it ended up being a, a much slimmer volume than I think you had envisioned. How much did he cut? <laughs> I'd say he, he uh, boiled it down to about um, a couple hundred pages. <laughs> he must have had a deadline. I, I can't imagine why. I mean... Um, Really had all the time in the world. <laughs> you know, the thing is, man, nobody asked Rumpelstiltskin to stop making gold. That is true. As long as there was hay, I was spinning it. The last I remembered, the barn was full of hay. So... So you're saying your pal Johnny just chucked a bunch of gold in the bin? Hey, man. I don't know that Johnny. <laughs> oh, the Johnny I know was a... <laughs> but let's, let's move on to another topic, Mr. Ellison. I, I, I certainly didn't mean to upset you, although in, in hindsight, I don't know how that could not have upset you. <laughs> So poor judgment on my part. I, I, I don't have an owl, you see, uh, uh, with me. Um, as such. Uh, as such. Uh, so um, let's talk about awards. <laughs> ah, yes, let's do that. Harry's back again. The writer's mind. It was a very good book. I just want to say that much. Um, 
in, uh, in uh, you received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, very high honor. Uh, you were made the ne very next year made a Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters by uh, France. Um, you became a permanent member of the faculty at New York University. Uh, I mean, elected to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Uh, and your hometown uh, of Oklahoma City honored you with the dedication of the Ralph Waldo Ellison Library. Now, that's, that's a wonderful honor to have a library named for you. One would think I'd have to see the library. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Never occurred to me. I mean, a library is just a cube, man. But brother, you have to look at what's inside, how it's structured, how it's organized, the works. How many of Ellison's works are there and how many copies? You know? <laughs> Can you take them out? Um, are, the, are the clothes there in the archives? There's, I mean, you know, personal <laughs> photographs, all the good stuff that makes a fam fantastic library even more fantastic. Uh, that's true. May, may I ask of the audience, has anyone here been to the Ralph uh, Waldo Ellison Library in Oklahoma City? <laughs> Yeah, out of politeness, you couldn't just pretend. <laughs> oh, many. Many people. I can see you, man. <laughs> I mean, if, if you could design it, what would you like it to look like, the, uh, y your library? Well, I was always partial to this sort of mausoleum thing that Frank Lloyd Wright was into. Big, thick slabs of just, you know, substance, manly stuff. Mm -hmm. Here's a brick of something, and here's another brick of something. Here's just like a big ziggurat-looking thing going down the inside of it, and the panels of glass, and let's, let's, let's cultivate it with succulents, even though it's Oklahoma City. Just put succulents in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just traveled three continents through sky and air like Zardos and landed right here. You know? It's like, get inside, get inside, man. Get, what is that thing? I don't know, but it looks like a stone tent. I'm inside it. Let's see what's in there, dude. Right? And a cafeteria, too. Oh, certainly. <laughs> oh, what about, what about a little shop? I like a little shop. Big shop. Really? <laughs> One whole floor? Just gift shop? Well, you know, I mean, if you make a little shop, it gets specialized, and then it, it, it's, it's a little difficult to, to control what goes in there. It's just mm -hmm. little trinkets and things and stuff, and then the steampunk people come in, and it gets, you know. <laughs> but if it's big, you get a whole section for... for Invisible man, scarves, silk scarves, <laughs> silk scarves, right? right? Egyptian moths, silk scarves. One whole section of that. And then you have books and snow globes. And I say, you know, something I, I, I feel as if uh, we were robbed of, uh, uh, people who wrote things for, for adults, um, was that uh, uh, bed sheets. <laughs> bed sheets? Well, there could very easily be uh, invisible man bed sheets of uh, both of uh, our works. I don't see why not. It'd be fantastic. Man. If, if you like something, why not sleep on it? <laughs> what I see now, and this is just my incredible brain working, but a, a pillowcase, a sheet set, two pillowcases that say, I am, and then the, sh the, 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 the sheet just says, an invisible man, all the way down. What, what's a, what sort of thread count are we talking here? 18,000, man. 18,000? <laughs> fine, fine stuff. Right? People bring you waffles in bed with that stuff and you don't ever get out. <laughs> you stay there for weeks at a time. Have you seen In the Realm of the Senses? They never came out of that room. I'm just saying. Um, uh, February of this year, February 18th, uh, the United States Postal Service issued a 91-cent stamp 
honouring Ralph Ellison and his literary arts series. I think that's worthy of applause. Well, the pro- part, of the pro- part of the problem is, and it's, I have it certainly is, I, I, just, I just want you to know, 91 cents isn't quite as impressive as it was uh, back in your day. The, the rates have gone up quite a bit. It's still, it's nothing to sneeze at. A stamp is a stamp. And it's not a postcard, Jobby. It's, this is a 91 cent stamp. That's for a big envelope. You know, for all its technology and fantastic neon colored uh, tennis shoes and everything, <laughs> you have brought me back to a very disappointing era. Because my first inclination is to think that people did not clap because the value of the stamp is not what I thought it was. My second inclination is to think that these people do not send letters using stamps. There is that. I mean, uh, sta- uh, stamps are not used quite as often as they used to. We have email now, and, and uh, uh, people are... Uh, you handwrite email? Y- you type it. So owls? You just, everybody's got an owl? Everyone's got their own personal owl. <laughs> With them at all times. This is, this is dire stuff. This is dire stuff. So, who's writing the books? Uh, pe- there, there are still books being written. There are still books being written. And, uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a great diversity of, uh, of styles and genres now. And um, I think that you have inspired a, a great many people. I, I hope that's of some, uh, some comfort to you, that y- your name uh, looms large in, in, in the pantheon. It absolutely is the thing, man, because how do you keep it going? You have to get to know these children. And, you know, listen, Charlie Brown, the thing is that if you don't <laughs> dig deep and get to these little kids, you know, I mean, you said, obviously, people who write books for adults, but I wrote that book for children. The idea is... <laughs> Is that so? Really? Yeah. The sure. Invisible Man. The Invisible Man. It's for all ages. Very sophisticated children, though, I would say. Well, Precocious only because you're a sophisticated man, but, you know, children are brutes. So they read That's it. That's true. They get through it. A big book like that, they get through in a day. They just go, oh, man, I don't like that part. Skip it, skip it, skip it. They're sleeping together, and then they read that, and then they skip and they go, well, then. but you know, at some point, a teacher's gonna go to him and go, have you read this? I've seen it, you haven't read it, read it. And then at another point, somebody's gonna say, we're reading this book and we're going to, uh, I don't know, compare the, 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 re- the reflexivity of it and Odysseus, you know, and we're gonna go and pull out these details and somebody's gonna give them a source, but it'll last them for the rest of their life. It's one of the greatest books ever written, so it's full of detail. <laughs> it can start. And go, you know? It's not a tulip. It'll last for a long time. That's why I say, get the, get the, get, when you get these books, get first editions, get the leather bound. You know, flying home, it's first edition, leather bound. You have it for the rest of your life. And I say, uh, that's a good blurb for the jacket. It's not a tulip. <laughs> Give it to a kid. Make sure he doesn't understand it. Yes. Ruin a child's Christmas. Well, Is there anything a child hates more on Christmas Day than man. books? Um, uh, many of you were... There, there was a, a, a flurry of, uh, of works of yours that were published posthumously. Um, short stories, essays, things like that. Um, how does that sit with you, the idea that these things uh, are being put out after you're gone? Well, you know... Um, is it tough to relinquish control, the idea that uh, it, it, may, it may not be exactly what you'd intended? As long as they didn't touch the words. 
Because I know the words were, 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 you know, solid. It's tight stuff. I wrote tight stuff every day. I would write, and you know, you know when a story's ending, because it just sounds like when you get off a train in another city and the air smells different, and you go, oh, I'm here. So there you go, I'm here. But every time I finish the story, I just go, that's tight, and I put it down. <laughs> you know? And does anybody need to see it? Well, I don't know. If they find it, good on them. It's, it's, they're going to find something tight, but you know, <laughs> it's in a drawer and it's tight. So as long as they published what was tight, you know, I'm you cool with it. But if they went in there and said, I'm going to cut out about 1,800 pages off of this short story, <laughs> you know. I think that was just the one instance of that. Um, second blurb for the book, it's tight. <laughs> It's not a tulip. It's tight. It's just, I should just have a book of blurbs, man. We, Stick oh, me. I say, I do like that idea. Yeah, right. A book of all blurbs? Just, just page after page of praise. You don't actually have to write the book. Ugh. I wish we thought of this sooner. If you can fill a book... Uh, we do just have time for some uh, questions from the social networking platform Twitter. These are oh. people that couldn't be here this evening, but uh, have uh, uh, written to you from far away. Um, here's one from uh, Kevin W. Young. Uh, in Invisible Man, uh, Dr. Ellison compares Southern and Northern racism. Is there a nascent racism of the West? <laughs> well, you know, this is a country based on, on frontier pushing. And when you get to the West, the frontier ends. Um, so you turn inside, which is the new frontier, from a literary standpoint. This is what Didion is all about, this internal frontier. Um, the nascent racism really is <laughs> that you somehow have to appear to be all right on the outside. That's it. In the West, everybody is cool. Everything is excellent. Everything is nice. But inside, you are James Fenimore Cooper, and you are doing some research trying to figure out what the hell is going on inside of you, you know? And it's just, it's just that pressure. So yeah, the racism is internal. It's you turning it in on yourself, really, in the West. People criticize themselves. I'm not right to go out, but I'm going to tell everybody I'm, I'm going to wear this shirt so everybody thinks that I'm all right. <laughs> I know that's some heavy stuff, <laughs> but I'm trying to tell you, read Didion. Okay? <laughs> There's a reason you can't watch Play It As It Lays. They hide that movie, because they don't want you to know. You leave. <laughs> it's all about you. Ask for the movie. Um, Evelyn Ann Clausen, uh, what do you think about Morgan Freeman's recent comments that race is no longer a factor in economic outcomes? I'm not aware of what this quote was, where, what, what the context was. Mr. Someone was asking Mr. Freeman, the actor, about uh, race in economic outcomes. I'm not quite clear on what economic outcomes are. Well, you know what it is, Dylan. It's like this. For a long time, the power was telling the populace what the world was. And when the market starts dictating the face of the economy, um, things change. So race is a factor. Um, is it a controlling factor? 
No, but it's a guiding factor. And it, I just think that the polarity has switched. And so now what's out there is dictating what people do in advertising. And keep in mind, that quote is coming from the guy who says, for everything else, that's MasterCard. <laughs> so, you know, he's got a vested interest in this stuff. He benefits from it. But really what you're seeing now, it is in the sense that a black person seeing an ad with, that reflects their lives thinks, oh, these people care about me. They don't. They just want you to buy the car. So they're giving you an invitation. That's what it is. That's a different kind of book. I don't live here in this time. So whoever the young Ellisons are that are out there, they've got to get in there and write about it. Are there any young Ellisons here in the crowd this evening? There's a bunch of yam salesmen. <laughs> it's all yam salesmen. Bunch man. of steampunk yam salesmen. Uh, in addition to being, uh, this was a, t this can't be a real name. Ty J. Von Plinsky. <laughs> in addition to being a writer, you are a sculptor, a musician, and a photographer. Any other mediums you'd like to explore? Yeah, surfing. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I just don't know how you get out on a board <laughs> and balance. That's the hardest knowing part. Knowing. Oh, I'm sorry, there's more. That there is bridled id-based rage underneath you. You're talking about every form of sea life. Have you? Oh, they don't care about you. Have you seen the cover of Benchley's book? <laughs> the shark is as wide as the book. And the person is the size of a the tooth. Convenient that person's going to go away, and there's no tooth fairy. It's just, it's just dead. Just dead. So you get out on a board and balance above that? That is a rare type of defiance. And so, yes, man, mastery of that. Ah, oh, jeez, that's control of the system. Catch a wave, and you're sitting on top of the world. Catch a wave. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke learned how to do it. Is that, is that so? Yes. Makes him a Jedi. Oh, I didn't realize. I, I'm only familiar with uh, Mr. Van Dyke for his atrocious English accent. Um, well, man, acting with an umbrella is a hell of a thing, so just... That is true. It's difficult to act with umbrellas. Um, this, this question comes to us from M at the W. In Amazing Spider-Man 2, <laughs> Electro was a riff on your titular Invisible Man. If you... Are, now, because we don't have a ton of time, let's say that that's true. <laughs> that we all accept that. It's obvious. Of course, this is what the filmmakers intended. The actual question being, if you had superpowers, how would you serve the world? And I, and I presume uh, uh, you can, you can uh, decide whatever superpower uh, you wish to have. All right, my answer to that is real quick. But first, I'm going to hit this, this titular. Please, thing. by all means. Um, I saw the movie. <laughs> Strangely enough. In flight entertainment. Not a riff on the Invisible Man. It's more simple than that. <laughs> look at a still. Look at the movie again. Trayvon Martin. 
This is what they did. Not in the original script, maybe, but in styling and trying to justify what he was doing. The selection, the hood, the crazy rage. It is supposed to be the manifest rage of some sort of consolidated racial identity. This is the same kind of lack of diversification and detail and attention to actually point-by-point -point expression and variance that I wrote about. It's the opposite of the Invisible Man. And if they try to do the Invisible Man, they screwed it up. They actually tried to do this Trayvon Martin thing with it, and they messed that up because they didn't even touch it because they knew if they did, Ralph Ellison would come through a time portal and stab him. <laughs> Much like I mean, look. Grendel's son ran around, and Beowulf found him and ripped his arm off. Beowulf found the mom and destroyed the mom, and the last feat was to get the dragon, the, in, the insurmountable dragon. But he found one chink of armor in the chest, and he I just stabbed the dragon. This trilogy is over, you know? It's crazy. <laughs> now, if I had a superpower, honestly, cupcakes. Because people love them. <laughs> just produce them at will? Dude, everybody, cupcakes. <laughs> there we go. Ralph Ellison, ladies and gentlemen. My thanks to Ralph Ellison for his time, and special thanks to Mr. Demorge Brown for no particular reason. This podcast is produced by Mrs. Ben Zelovansky and Paul F. Tompkins, with special material written by Mr. Zelovansky. The producers wish to thank Cody Fisher, Marlene Maginot, Jim Yatto, Mike Still, Susan Hale, and everyone at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theatre Los Angeles, and Joel Arkeos and Tia Stark at 826LA. Our theme was composed and performed by Mr. Eben Schletter, Esquire. Our program is recorded live and monthly at the UCB Theatre Los Angeles. If you'd like to attend a future recording, tickets may be acquired at ucbtheatre.com. The theatre donates all proceeds to 826LA. For updates on future performances, please like the Dead Authors page on Facebook. For additional updates or to ask questions of our guests from the safety of your very own thumbs, follow us on Twitter, at DeadAuthorPod. The original Dead Authors reading series was created by Mr. John Korn. Until next time, this is H.G. Wells saying the show is over.